Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. We got a rally in the stock market today. Of course, everybody is once again excited that the lows are in just because we had a rally as if bear markets don't have rallies. They do. That is the characteristic of every bear market. They fall a slope of hope. They have to have these big rallies just to convince people not to sell, to get people to think that it's just a correction. And that's probably what we had today. The Dow was up about 400 points on the close, getting back maybe about two-thirds of what it lost yesterday. The NASDAQ also up about... um, Almost 3%, just over 200 points. But remember, it lost 4.5% yesterday. So it didn't even recover all of yesterday's losses. It's just a rally. Nothing has changed. In fact, we got some stocks that reported after the bell that disappointed. Google came out with uh, bad numbers, and it has already surrendered in the aftermarket everything that it gained during today's session. The same thing with Amazon, which was way up, which is now down as a result of coming out with earnings that missed estimates after the bell. I guess the big beat is uh, Intel. Intel came out with better numbers, and so it's adding to its strong gain that it had earlier today. But I think overall, uh, the market is probably going to be down tomorrow based on you the fact that you have these high-profile misses. But even if we didn't have those misses, we probably would have seen a decline. You know, Also, look at some of the other stocks that came out today with bad numbers. Southwest Airlines, uh, LUV, the symbol, down 8.5%, new 52-week low. The reason that Southwest Airlines... Uh, disappointed was because of higher costs. And they basically guided down based on increasing costs, which is part of the stagflationary environment into which we are headed. In fact, all the airlines are going to have a big problem with stagflation because stagflation is going to do two things that are going to be particularly problematic for the airlines. One, it's going to increase the cost of operating their flight Right, So their costs are going to go up, their fuel costs are going to go up, and, and other costs, labor costs probably are going up. But as the economy slows and people start losing their jobs, and of course as their customers are also dealing with a higher cost of living, they are going to be cutting back on their air travel. People are going to take fewer vacations, and if they take a vacation, they're not going to fly. Maybe they're going to drive, or if they can't afford to drive, they're going to have one of those staycations where you basically stay at home. So if they have rising costs and they have um, falling revenues, I mean, that is a, a recipe for disaster. And so that's just more bad economic news, which is being ignored. And we did get quite a bit of economic news that came out this morning, most of it on the bad side. And so today's rally had to overlook that bad news. In fact, I was watching CNBC this morning 
just before the news was announced. And the, the whoever was the anchor who was announcing the news said, hey, we got a lot of news coming out at 8.30, and I'm going to, you know, let's go over the news items in order of importance. And so the first one that they read off was the durable goods numbers, and they those came out. And then they went over the weekly jobless claims, and then they went over the retail and wholesale inventories. And then that was it. That was all they reported. And they left out the actually most important number that came out at 8.30, which was the merchandise trade deficit. But as far as CNBC is concerned, the trade deficit is immaterial. It doesn't even matter what the trade deficit is. And in a way, they're right because the markets couldn't give a damn. I mean, at one point in time, the trade deficit was the most important number that came out every month. It was more important than the uh, than the non-farm payroll number. That's when people were smart enough to recognize that a trade deficit is actually a bad thing. But Donald Trump has made the trade deficit a big part of his presidency. It was a big part of his campaign. So you would think that maybe CNBC would basically think that it was important enough to even mention. I mean, if they were doing it in order, at least mention it fourth, if they think it's the fourth most important number, but they didn't even mention it at all. That's how unimportant they think the trade deficit is. But the durable goods number that came out, you know, they reported it as a good number because it beat, because the headline number was up 0.8 when they were looking for uh, down 1.5. But the main reason that the headline beat was because of military orders, a defense spending on aircraft, defense aircraft, right? Bombers or fighter planes. But if you take all that stuff out and you just looked at core capital goods, they were looking for an increase of 0.5 and we got a decrease of 0.1. So the only reason the number went up is because the U.S. government took on more debt to buy more military equipment. That is not a sign of a strong economy. We are not going to benefit because we went deeper into debt to buy uh, more weapons. You know, uh, maybe if we were at, in a war and we really needed those weapons, but even then, I mean, you're, you're buying things that you need. I mean, if uh, all of a sudden there's a lot more crime in my neighborhood and I have to invest in a burglar alarm or I have to build a fence, uh, that, 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 that's nothing that I want. I mean, it's something that I have to do because all of a sudden crime went up, but that's not a sign of, of, of a good economy. And also, if I'm going to have to spend more money protecting myself, well, what am I going to give up? I mean, what other things am I not going to do because I don't have an unlimited amount of money? And if all of a sudden there's more crime and I have to spend more money protecting myself, well, then there's certain things that I have to give up in order to afford that. So if we're going to spend more money defending ourselves from an imaginary threat, well, then obviously we have to give up something in order to make that possible. And the stuff that we give up is going to hurt a lot more than what we benefit by having uh, more military. Just like I don't benefit if I have a more elaborate security system around my home, right? I mean, I only benefit to the extent that I protect my property from theft, but it would be better if I didn't have to do that. If there was less crime and I didn't have to worry about those things. The fact that you have to spend money uh, protecting yourself is, is does not add to your to your happiness. I'm just simply trying to prevent criminals from subtracting from my happiness. But getting back to the numbers that came out, the um, inventory numbers disappointed, right? Uh, these numbers uh, showed a smaller than expected build in inventories. But the most important number that nobody wanted to talk about was the trade deficit for the month of September. 
And the trade deficit was expected to come out at $74.7 billion, which would be a slight reduction of the $75.8 billion from the prior month. And they did revise the prior month down a little bit to $75.5 billion. But the September month came out at $76 billion. So it was even higher than the previous month before the revision, but it's more after the revision. But this is now the fourth consecutive month where the merchandise trade deficit, and this is just the goods deficit. It doesn't include uh, uh, services. It's just looking at goods. But this is the fourth consecutive monthly increase. But most importantly, the $76 billion September trade deficit is the single largest trade deficit ever recorded by the United States in merchandise in one month. Now, when you have Donald Trump going around the country talking about how we're winning the trade war. Every speech that he gives at every rally, we're winning this trade war. The purpose of the trade war, according to Donald Trump, is to reduce our trade deficit because our trade deficit is what we're losing, right? The trade deficit is the law. So if we have a $500 billion deficit, then Trump is saying we're losing $500 billion, right? So the purpose of the trade war is to reduce those losses and maybe actually have a surplus so we can have a gain instead of a loss, right? So if the goal of the trade war is to reduce the trade deficit, and if the trade deficits are rising, if the trade deficits are higher now than when we declared war, if we just had the highest trade deficit in U.S. history, then by what measure is Donald Trump claiming that we are winning the trade war? Because by his own definition of our objectives, we are losing the war. I mean, you imagine a general, you know, we're losing every battle, right? We're, you know, all of our troops are dying and we claim that we're winning the war. I mean, he's kind of like that Baghdad Bob from the Iraq war that was saying that, you know, they were winning the war, you know, even as uh, American, uh, you know, tanks were rolling down the streets of Baghdad to try to claim that they're winning the war. I mean, that's what Donald Trump is doing. He's claiming we are winning the trade war that we are obviously losing by any objective measure. And of course, this is basically defines everything that's going on right now in the Trump administration. It's just you pretend everything is great. You just ignore all the evidence and just pretend we have the greatest economy ever when we don't. And you pretend that we're winning the trade war when we're obviously losing it. Now, as a result of these numbers that came out today, the Atlanta Fed did revise down its estimate for Q3 GDP. They went from 3.9 to 3.6. This is actually the lowest estimate they've had. And we actually get the government's number tomorrow. So we'll see how close they were. Although whatever number we get from the government tomorrow, I really expect that they're going to revise it rather substantially uh, 30 days down the line. So I, you know, I just think it's a preliminary number, but we get that number tomorrow. But in any event, because of the larger than expected trade deficit and because of the smaller than expected inventory build, the Atlanta Fed took down uh, their number. And, um, but Wall Street is just completely ignoring what's going on. All the discussions that I uh, was listening to today were all about how the economy is doing great and how there's nothing to worry about and how there's no chance of a recession. And so this is just a correction and there's nothing to worry about. Again, there has never been a recession that people have worried about. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, from my observation, I think the closer you are to recession and the worse the recession is going to be, the fewer people recognize that it's coming. That's why during the Great Recession, probably six months into the Great Recession, 
Nobody thought a recession was coming, even though they were already in one. So I think it's possible that we could already be in one. Who knows? We could already be there. We're not going to know uh, for many, many months, many quarters before they go back and revise the numbers down. But you know, I want to talk a little bit about the the trade deficits and the dollar because I got an email I think from a client uh, asking me about you know why am I so sure that the dollar is going to go down. And one of the reasons is because of these huge trade deficits and because of the huge budget deficits. So it's important for people to understand what it is that gives a currency value relative to other currencies. Because I'm talking about not only the dollar going down in absolute terms, meaning in purchasing power, but I think the dollar is going to lose value in relation to other fiat currencies that exist. So you have to understand what gives a fiat currency value because when you have real currency that's backed by gold, well, obviously it gets its value from the gold that's backing it up. But when you don't have anything behind your currency, when there's no gold, it's just paper, then what determines its exchange rate versus the paper that's being created by by some other country? The two most important things to look at are your fiscal position and your net balance of trade. So one thing that's important is, is the government running a budget surplus or budget deficits? And that's important because if it's running deficits, then its central bank may be called on to monetize those deficits to create money to buy up the bonds. And so that would increase the supply of your currency. And so as the currency is becoming more abundant, as the supply is getting greater, the value of the currency is going to drop relative to other currencies whose supply is not growing because the governments are running balanced budgets or budget surpluses. The other thing you have to look at is your net trade balance. Are you running a surplus? Are you running a deficit? If you are running a trade surplus, that means that you are producing goods that other people want to buy, and therefore they need your currency to buy those goods. So that creates demand for the currency because the currency is what you need to buy the goods that are being produced. If, on the other hand, you are running a trade deficit, that means you are putting out excess currency into the global market, and if there is no demand for that currency to buy your goods, well, then the currency is going to fall in value. So the key things are looking at the budgets and looking at trade. Well, America, it's a disaster. We have huge budget deficits and we have huge trade deficits. Now, the only way that you can have a trade deficit and still have a strong currency is if you have a a, a current account surplus. So you can have a lot of investment income that enables you to run a a trade deficit because you have the investment flows to pay for it. But in the United States' situation, we have a current account deficit too. We have a current account deficit and a trade deficit, and we have these budget deficits, and they are skyrocketing, and they are all going to be much, much larger in the future than they are today. Now, the reason that the dollar is not already falling, even though our trade deficits are rising and our budget deficits are rising, is because the dollar is the reserve currency. And so there are times when the dollar can be in demand, even if you don't need dollars to buy our stuff. And even if the government is going deeper into debt, and that could be if there is a demand for the dollar as a safe haven, as a reserve asset, and if people want dollars to buy U.S. financial assets, whether they're stocks, whether they're bonds, whether they're real estate. So if foreigners want dollars to buy our stocks, bonds, and real estate, then that can temporarily offset 
uh, the, the the otherwise weakening effects that you would have based on our trade deficits and our budget deficits. But in the long run, this is very problematic for the United States because if we were not issuing the reserve currency, if we were just any other country and we were running these imbalances, these big trade deficits and budget deficits, the collapse in our currency would force a change in policy. As the dollar went down and interest rates went up, that would reduce our trade deficit because we couldn't afford to import as much because our currency would be so low. And rising interest rates would force the government to cut back on its borrowing. And so there is a free market correction. If you're running too big a deficit, budget or trade, and your currency tanks and interest rates rise, then the market you know, brings you back into line. And now your trade uh, deficit goes away, your budget deficits go away, and you bring things into balance and your currency can stabilize. But since America is not being disciplined by market forces in that way, our imbalances are being allowed to grow and grow and go and get much bigger than would otherwise be the case. It's like we've got all this rope that we're using to hang ourselves with. Because what is going to happen when the U.S. economy turns into recession and the Fed goes back to zero in quantitative easing, nobody is going to want dollars to buy U.S. financial assets anymore. No one's going to want to buy our bonds. No one's going to want to buy our stocks. They're going to want to invest in you know, stocks and bonds and real estate in other countries that are growing faster, that have appreciating currencies. And the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar. We're finally going to get uh, the market punishment that has been delayed all of these years. And because the imbalances have been allowed to grow so high, um, it's going to be particularly harsh. And the idea that the dollar is going to fall, this is, you know, this is not a crazy thing. The dollar has been falling pretty much since 1971. I mean, it doesn't fall in a straight line. It has bear market rallies along the way. But whenever those rallies top out, the market goes down and makes a new record low. The record low last time for the dollar index was in 2008. And Ironically, the financial crisis saved the dollar and, you know, it had a reprieve. It had a it had a rally, a dead cat bounce. But I think that rally has run its course. And I think, you know, the next time the dollar goes down, I expect it's going to go down for the count. I think the next bear market is the bear market. I think this is going to be when the dollar loses its role as the reserve currency. It's just amazing how few people recognize that this is about to happen. In fact, nowhere is this lack of concern more obvious than in today's action in the gold stocks. Now, the price of gold did not move very much today. In fact, I think the most I saw it down was maybe about four bucks. In fact, it closed down less than two dollars, down about a buck seventy, above twelve thirty one. Yet despite the fact that gold barely moved, gold stocks got got crushed. This was probably one of the weakest days I've seen for gold stocks. The GDX was down 4.38% on the day. Juniors not quite down as much, 3.3%, but it was across the board selling. Probably the weakest name was Gold Corp, uh, which was down over 18%, closed at 849, uh, a new multi-multi-year uh, low in Gold Corp. They had bad earnings and the stock went down, but they weren't that bad. Uh, but even the stocks that had better than expected earnings, Newmont was down 6.8%. Agnico Eagle, which reported good earnings, was up um, 
earlier in this morning. It was up like 7 8%. Ended up down 3.5%. I think Barrick's earnings were good. That stock, which was up, was down 4%. There was across-the-board selling today in the gold names. Now, why was that happening? I mean, you would think that given the weakness in the U.S. stock market, that some people might want to hedge by buying gold stocks. Now, first of all, this shows, again, that today's rally conned a lot of people. A lot of people thought that the bottom was in because we had this 400-point rally in the Dow. People think it's over. The correction is over, and a lot of stocks went up. In fact, most of the stocks that I own, whether it's for me or for clients, that were not gold stocks, had phenomenal days. I mean, I had stocks that were up 8 9 10% or more today that were not gold stocks. Uh, and they had great rallies today. And I do think internally, if you look at the market, you can see that the momentum is shifting away from uh, growth stocks into value stocks because those are the kind of stocks that I own. And those stocks had spectacular days today uh, relative to what we saw in the momentum stocks and the tech names. So again, this rotation beneath the surface is happening and it is showing you a change that we're we're going into a bear market that investors are favoring out of uh, favor stocks undervalued beaten down stocks stocks that have yield and they're getting out of the high flyers that really define the bull market so this shift shows you that we're changing gears we're going out of bull market mode into defensive uh, bear market mode and the fact that you know so many investors dump their gold stocks shows that People are complacent. I mean, maybe some some investors bought gold stocks a couple of weeks ago as the market started to fall, and now that they think the market has finished falling, well, they're they're getting rid of their gold stocks. Or maybe people were disappointed that gold didn't have a bigger rise. I mean, it did go up, but maybe some people were disappointed uh, that the advance wasn't even larger. But an explanation that I think potentially could be it might be Vanguard. And I made the uh, announcement, or I spoke about it on this podcast when Vanguard announced that they were going to shut down their gold fund. And by far, they have the largest gold fund in the country. I mean, it's not even close. And they had decided that they were going to no longer be a gold fund. Obviously, gold funds had done so poor uh, over the years that they were going to throw in the towel. And I thought that that was a great indication of, of a bottom, that you have this gold fund deciding it doesn't want to be a gold fund anymore because there's no point because the returns on gold funds have been so bad. And so they obviously have a lot of stocks to sell. They have been selling. But I also think that a lot of the investors in this fund are now uh, redeeming because they're now they've been informed that the, their fund, the gold fund that they bought is no longer a gold fund and they're going to be liquidating their gold stocks and they have a different objective. So I think they're also getting a lot of liquidation. So they've got to sell a lot of gold stocks. And what I've heard is that they like to wait for days with more volume because they have so much stock to sell. And there was a lot of earnings that came out yesterday, today in the gold sector. And usually when there's earnings, there's more volume and that gives you an opportunity to sell. But I think think the buyers took advantage of these sellers and uh, Vanguard got some lousy prices for the stocks that they were selling. Because believe me, I think this is a gift horse buying opportunity today. I mean, this is the back the truck up. You have some stocks that hit 52-week lows when the fundamentals haven't been this good for gold stocks in years relative to where the price of gold is likely to go. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, was we were in there buying today. I would suggest that people buy. I mean, you can go buy some gold stocks on your own. Obviously, I'm partial to my own gold fund, the Europe Pacific Gold Fund, EPGFX. EPGFX is the symbol of my gold fund. You can check that out. Look at the track record. 
But I'm not sure how long these gold stocks are going to stay at these depressed prices because um, I don't think the selling is sustainable. But that would be the only explanation. I mean, why would people dump gold stocks today unless you just had to get out of gold stocks and you were going to dump them? I mean, it seems to me that if you were owning gold stocks, you would want to keep them now more than ever before. I mean, if you had made a decision that you wanted to be in gold stocks as a hedge, this is not the time to take off your hedge. So to me, this type of across the broad, indiscriminate selling, selling the stocks that beat their earnings as well as the ones that missed is to me looks like a, a major fund just getting out of stocks regardless, not really caring about price, just trying to unload them. And they just you know, they got taken advantage of, but that is an opportunity for the smart money, the sophisticated money who can make a, an educated decision and to buy these stocks. But again, I look at this as another indication too of the extreme optimism and the lack of concern, the complacency that is out there in the face of overwhelming evidence, not only that we are entering a bear market, but that the U.S. economy is on the verge of a recession, and not just a typical mild cyclical recession, but a recession that is probably going to be far deeper and far longer lasting than the Great Recession uh, of 2008. Another thing, though, I wanted to talk about on the podcast today was this typhoon, uh, U2, as the name of it. This was a Category 5 storm, right? They call them typhoons uh, in the, the Pacific, right? We call them hurricanes uh, here in the, in the Atlantic. Uh, but a typhoon hit the Northern Mariana Islands, which is another United States possession. It's, you know, down there near Guam. And the Northern Mariana Islands became a possession of the United States uh, as a result of World War II. We got these islands from Japan. In fact, the, the mission to drop the, uh, the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the plane, the Inglor Gate, took off uh, from the Northern Mariana Islands. But right now it's a possession of the United States. And just like Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, and we also was at Irma, I think, that hit the Virgin Islands. Now you have this typhoon that basically wiped out. This is one of the strongest storms, Cat 5 uh, typhoon, to hit the United States or a, a territory. So the the, uh, the nation, the island got leveled. I mean, this place is decimated. It's not getting a lot of coverage uh, in the story, clearly not nearly as much coverage as Puerto Rico got. It's a lot smaller. Right? There's only about 50,000 people who live in uh, the Northern Mariana Islands, but I mean, almost all of them are now homeless. So, I mean, this is a human tragedy. This is a big loss for the, the people who live there. But a couple of reasons that I wanted to point it out. One, obviously the U.S. government is on the hook, FEMA, for a tremendous amount of disaster relief uh, in the Northern Mariana Islands, because again, they're U.S. citizens. This is a U.S. possession. We're going to have to come there with a lot of aid. We don't have the money. Right, this is more spending, more borrowed money. It's not going to be on the budget, right? They're going to put all this off budget because, hey, this is just an emergency, and we're just not going to count it as part of the official budget, even though we have these emergencies every single year. But this again is going to make the situation worse. The deficits are just going to be even larger as a result of the money that we're going to have to spend to rebuild what was destroyed. And of course, this is not good for the GDP, like the Keynesians would argue, because all we're doing is spending scarce resources, replacing what we already had. 
And so what are we not going to be able to do because we had to spend money rebuilding stuff that we already had, right? So when you replace what you lost, you're no better off. You're just back where you started. Uh, but now you had to give up something uh, that you might otherwise have been able to do if you weren't forced to spend the money to repair what the uh, typhoon destroyed. But what I really want to talk about, too, I was reading an article in the Washington Post about the storm. And the article happened to mention uh, the fact that, you know, their main industry was tourism, but that in the past they had a thriving textile industry and that the textile industry was destroyed by the minimum wage law. They actually understood that it was the minimum wage law that destroyed the industry because what happened was that Congress decided under the Democrats that they were going to apply the U.S. minimum wage to all of the territories. And I've already talked about what happened to American Samoa when we did that. We destroyed uh, their uh, tuna canning industry. The two major companies, uh, Chicken of the Sea and Starkist, uh, had all these canning facilities that employed thousands uh, on, on the island. And when the minimum wage was impacted, they just shut down the factories and fired everybody because they could no longer be competitive having to pay such high wages. I mean, the wages that they paid were fine because obviously the cost of living in American Samoa was much lower than it was on the mainland. And so the wages that were being paid were were perfectly adequate. I mean, people were having fine uh, employment opportunities and the island was in good shape. But of course, uh, our minimum wage uh, sent them into a depression. And I've talked about that as well. It caused prices to skyrocket because they no longer had imports because they were exporting all this canned tuna to the United States. And the ships would come back you know, with all sorts of merchandise from the United States in order to pick up the tuna. But when they were no longer sending tuna to the United States, they th there was no ships. So now the cost of importing stuff skyrocketed because they had nothing to export. So unemployment was 30%. Inflation was up. There. I mean, we devastated the entire country. I never talked about what happened in the Northern Mariana Islands. So they had a textile industry. And the Washington Post pointed out that before we decided to impose the minimum wage on the Northern Mariana Islands and subject workers there to the minimum wage, there was a thriving textile industry. They were exporting over a billion dollars a year of textiles to the United States. And as soon as we put the minimum wage on Northern Mariana Islands, we destroyed the entire textile industry. There's nothing left. The exports are now zero. So all of the people who were employed in these industries lost their jobs, right? So, you know, the American politicians were, oh, this we got these poor people in uh, the Northern Mariana Islands, you know, it's unfortunate that they're not getting the protection of the minimum wage and it's not fair and we need to extend these benefits to everybody and all the U.S. possessions, right? This is not fair that these people are being exploited, acting as if that, you know, we're doing them a favor by, by putting them in a wage. We weren't doing them a favor. We were, we were destroying their jobs. The protection was they didn't have the minimum wage. The minimum wage is a liability for workers because what the minimum wage says is that if you cannot deliver a, this amount of productivity to an employer, it is illegal for you to work. The reason that people in the Mariana Islands had jobs in the textile industry was because they didn't have to deal with the minimum wage. They were liberated. They were able to work for less than minimum wage. But when the government 
made them subject to the minimum wage and they no longer had the benefit of being able to work for less than the minimum wage, when they had to demand to be paid the minimum wage, they could no longer have a job because their employers couldn't afford to pay them that minimum wage and still be competitive. So we destroyed the jobs. They didn't get raises. They got fired. They got pink slips. You know, this is a perfect example. Now, of course, the, the Washington Post doesn't even, you know, probably connect the dots. At least they connected enough dots to know that it was the higher minimum wage that destroyed the entire industry. But I'm sure, you know, they, they're probably in favor of the minimum wage here. And they can't see the connection between, hey, if the minimum wage destroyed all the jobs in the Mariana Islands, well, it's probably destroying jobs in the United States, too, in the mainland. It's just you know, it's not as obvious because the the wages were not as high. We, the minimum wage is much higher. But if we had a national $15 an hour minimum wage here, there are a lot of jobs that would be destroyed that have not been destroyed by the lower minimum wage. But the higher you make the minimum wage, the more jobs you're going to destroy. But of course, all the American politicians, right, that, you know, feel good about themselves, these, you know, uh, limousine liberals or whatever you want to call them, you know, they like to just, you know, feel good. Oh, look, you know, we raised the minimum wage and that shows how much we care. But the fact that everybody got fired and they couldn't care less, right? All these people had to be sacrificed so that the liberals can feel good about themselves and say, yes, we voted to increase the minimum wage in the Mariana Islands. Meanwhile, okay, well, nobody's benefiting from that because all the people that used to have jobs just got fired. And so now they're getting zero. They're not getting this high wage that you think they should be entitled to. They actually lost the wages that they were happy to get. They had a good life and now they're gone. So now they're just basically depending on tourism. And now that's been dealt a blow uh, by this typhoon that's wiped everything out. But it's just another perfect example of the destruction that is caused by the minimum wage. I mean, we did more damage to the Mariana Islands by imposing the minimum wage than the typhoon did, right? I mean, we decimated their textile industry completely and it'll never come back, right? What the hurricane destroyed can be rebuilt, but what the U.S. government destroyed with the minimum wage will never be rebuilt. I want to finish up this podcast, though, by talking about this Megyn Kelly story. I didn't even know about it until I read today that she was fired from her job on NBC. And if you remember Megyn Kelly, she was uh, on Fox News up until NBC uh, snagged her and signed her to this huge contract. And I didn't even realize, but she said something on Tuesday. Two days later, she is fired from NBC. And they had hired her initially with a contract where they were going to pay her whether she worked or not. So they're paying her $69 million in order to fire her. So she's going to collect the entire paycheck without actually working, which is probably a win uh, for Megyn Kelly. But what NBC is doing is so ridiculous that, you know, I don't even ever want to watch NBC again. I mean, I want to just totally boycott the network because that's how ridiculous they are. Now, what Megyn Kelly did is she was talking on television about Halloween costumes and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And she basically said she didn't understand why uh, it was inappropriate for white kids, right, to put on blackface to be a, a black character and for black kids to put on a white face to be a white character. She didn't understand why uh, this would be considered racist for uh, you know, one a child of one race to dress as if he was a member of a different race if he was trying to be a character of that race, right? And I think she was thinking about the whole controversy of, you know, stealing somebody's culture or some identity, all this kind of nonsense where, you know, they're trying to say now that, 
you know, if you're a man, you can't dress up as a woman for Halloween, which is complete nonsense. I mean, I know like these are adults. I, you know, I remember going to college. A lot of the football players would like to dress as cheerleaders. And it's funny. I mean, guys look funny in a dress, especially if they're, you know, they got a muscular physique and then they put on a dress. I mean, it's funny. Or they're saying that, you know, it, you can't dress up as, as a Native American if you're not a Native American. I mean, all, all this stuff is complete nonsense about these PC rules. And I think that's what Megyn Kelly was referring to. And you can watch the entire clip. It's up there on YouTube. It's totally innocent, right? She is not even differentiating between a white kid putting on a black face or a black kid putting on a white face. She thinks that it's all equal, but it's not because what everybody is now claiming to be upset about is the fact that back in the you know 1800s, right, uh, they had minstrel shows. And in the minstrel shows, uh, white actors would put on blackface and entertain audiences in a way that a lot of people today think was offensive or demeaning to black people. And so what they're saying is that no white children today should be allowed to put on a blackface because it would remind people of the minstrel shows and and all, and how Americans used to treat black people. And so out of deference to that, and so not to offend uh, blacks today, no white kid can ever put black makeup on their face and pretend to be black because it's going to make black people feel bad because it's going to make them remember the days of the minstrel show, which is all complete nonsense. I mean, first of all, Megyn Kelly had no idea uh, about this. It's obvious if you listen to it. And in fact, she apologized the next day on television. She said, look, I meant nothing by it. I didn't realize that people would be offended by a white child putting on black makeup to be a black character. I didn't realize that some people could be offended by this. And so I apologize. So she apologized for inadvertently offending somebody, right? Which I don't even believe she had to do. I mean, if you inadvertently offend somebody, I mean, the person who is offended is the one that's got a problem, right? If somebody doesn't know that they're offending you and you're so thin-skinned that you get offended yourself, I mean, tough it up. But she decided to apologize anyway when I don't even think it was warranted. But NBC says, you know what? We can't even have her on the air. Even though she inadvertently may have offended somebody and apologized for doing it, we have to fire her and pay her $69 million. That's how much we can't tolerate somebody saying something that somebody in the black community is going to claim to be offended by. I mean, this is complete nonsense. There is nothing wrong. I guess if I worked on NBC, I would have to be fired too for this podcast if it was there because I don't think she did anything wrong. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a, a white kid dressing up as a black person for Halloween. Look, my five-year-old is going to be Ant-Man. He decided he wanted to be Ant-Man this Halloween. So we're getting him an Ant-Man costume. What if he wanted to be the Black Panther, right? So he can't be the Black Panther? Because some other black kid trick-or-treating may be offended? No, they're not. They're not going to be offended by it. Nobody would be offended by it. I mean, if anything, hey, this white kid, you know, he admires the Black Panther. The fact that he wants to dress up as the Black Panther. And if you want to be the Black Panther, you got to be black. It's not the White Panther. So my five-year-old can't be the Black Panther. Is Do they really think someone's going to be offended? First of all, we're going to be trick-or-treating in Westport, Connecticut. There's like, I don't know, it's not even 1% black. So are, are all the other white uh, trick-or-treaters going to get offended if they see my, my five-year-old dressed as the Black Panther? But of course, even if there was another black trick-or-treater or his parents, they're going to think it's cute. They're not going to be offended. Nobody even remembers the minstrel shows. I mean, most people around today, look, they haven't had the last 
uh, person, I think, to appear in blackface, really, was Al Jolson, right? And that was in 1927 in The Jazz Singer, which was the first uh, talking uh, motion picture, right? Probably nobody alive today has even seen that movie. I mean, there's a few, 1927. There's probably a few people that are alive, but they're not out trick-or-treating, right? And and But most of these minstrel shows died out long before the jazz singer. They were popular in the early 1800s. By the latter 1800s, early 1900s, they were replaced by vaudeville, right? And so this is an old-style form of entertainment. And you know what? It wasn't as bad as everybody is trying to say. Look, everybody's saying, oh, this was terrible because all they were doing was making fun of blacks because they had these white people in blackface. But, you know, they actually had some minstrel shows that were performed by blacks themselves. So it wasn't always white actors in blackface. There were some black people that were doing these shows, too. And there were black people that went and saw the shows, as a matter of fact. I mean, a lot of people saw them. They was very Initially, it started out, it was really kind of a low-brow uh, you know, entertainment, but it became very mainstream. People really enjoyed going to these shows. And in fact, they were very controversial. And one of the reasons that they were controversial is a lot of the segregationists didn't like it because of the positive way that it portrayed blacks. You know, it made them endearing. It made people like them. They were, it was, it was entertaining, but also it was the culture, the music, the singing, the dancing. I mean, really, if you want to go back at it, I mean, this is really when white people started to appreciate black music. And it went on, you know, throughout the 1900s. I mean, that was the origin of rock and roll, right? I mean, why did rock and roll become popular, right? This was black music. This is Delta Blues, right? Elvis Presley really was, you know, he became famous singing, you know, black music, right? And so all of this stuff basically originated with, with these minstrel shows. And a lot of the, the northerners, because the shows were much more popular up north than they were down south, because, you know, people up north didn't experience what was going on and, you know, plantations and slaves. And, and so for a lot of people, you know, this, they, did, they really didn't interact with, with, with blacks. And this kind of, you know, introduced uh, the, the culture of the south. And it kind of, you know, made them more human. And it made, it made them more likable. And a lot of people didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that that blacks were being portrayed in a way that whites held them in, in, in higher regard. And they didn't like white people enjoying their music and their singing and their dancing. Now, I think one of the things that people are upset about is that it didn't portray uh, the blacks as, as very smart or very intelligent. They were maybe dim-witted, uh, carefree, you know, go lucky. They were more into singing and dancing, right? And it, it didn't emphasize their intellect. It, enter, it emphasized, uh, you know, their, their being funny and their entertaining. But of course, you know, these are shows, these are comical musical shows, and of course, the blacks of the day, I mean, they were not highly educated. They were, they were living on plantations. They were slaves. It's not like, you know, black people on slaves spent all day talking about philosophy and science, you know, when they, you know, when, when they had some time off. I mean, so it would have been ridiculous to focus on the intellect of the blacks at the time, they focused on what you know what brought joy to their lives, their mu- music or dancing, and and these shows became extremely popular all over the North, and they were popular for for decades. And yes, you know, some people might have said, oh, you know, they're they're more offensive uh, to blacks. You're you're making fun of blacks, but you know, we people are always made fun of in in entertainment. I mean, there's always you know they exaggerate. Uh, certain characteristics in order to get laughs. I mean, that we do that today. I mean, look at the look at the stuff that comedians. You ever listen to a modern day comic? I mean, look at they they insult everybody. Insults are funny. 
I mean, look at what the black uh, entertainers say. I mean, they, they have some of the raunchiest stuff out there. They insult everybody, including other blacks. And then if you look at the, the, the gangster rap, if you look at the entertainment that's being put out today by blacks, comparing that uh, to uh, what was being done in these minstrel shows, I mean, I think it's far worse uh, in, in many respects today. But, you know, even if you believe that, okay, these minstrel shows, it was all just making fun of blacks and it was all racist. What difference does it make? That was 150 years ago. Just because some white people put on blackface, right, for entertainment, right, and even if they made fun, it's not like they were lynching blacks, right? This isn't the Ku Klux Klan, right? This is this is entertainment. This is song and dance, right? And if it was done in a way that we now believe today was offensive, and maybe some people were offended by it at the time, although again, a lot of the people that were offended by it were the segregationists, the people that were pro-slavery. They didn't like blacks being portrayed in a positive way, even if you know it wasn't because of their intellect, but just because of their carefree uh, way of life and their, their music and their dancing and just their attitudes. They didn't like that. They didn't like white people thinking positively about black people. So you could, you could say that they accomplished more benefit than harm. And certainly if they paved the way uh, for more progress, certainly when it comes to uh, uh, black music uh, becoming mainstream and being, you know, being widely enjoyed, because a lot of the stereotypes, or a lot of the races that might have existed, you know, music is one of the reasons that it's gone because you had so many white kids who loved black music and black entertainers. And that was a way to to take that culture into the mainstream. And if some of your favorite songs and favorite entertainers are black and you're buying their records and you're going to their concerts, well, to the extent that you were racist or prejudiced, then a lot of that racism and prejudice goes away. So to the extent that the minstrel shows of the early 1800s help make all that possible, then it's probably a positive thing. But even if you want to throw that out, and even if you want to say, you know what, it was just racist and offensive, who cares? It's 150 years ago. Nobody who's out trick-or-treating today is going to be offended. Nobody even remembers it. Nobody knows about it. Who cares? Right? I mean, because if somebody is putting on blackface today because they want to um, go trick-or-treating as somebody that they admire who happens to be black, like a black superhero, like the Black Panther. And if I want to go as this black character and I want to make myself look like the Black Panther, then what's wrong with that? I mean, blacks should say, hey, this is great. Look, this white kid wants to dress up as a black superhero. He's not racist. He could have been any other superhero, but he chose the Black Panther. That's a positive thing. Right. To have white people go as a black character. In fact, if you want to have a colorblind society, if you want to say that we've progressed and there's no racism, then you can't draw a distinction. If it's OK for black people to dress up as white characters and put white makeup on their face, then it's OK for white people, white kids to put on black makeup to go as a black character. And that's all Megyn Kelly was saying. I mean, and she, and she didn't even know about the minstrel shows or about the history. She just didn't understand why if a white person, uh, you know, reveres a, a black celebrity or a black character, why they can't embrace that character and dress up like that character. 
In her mind, it wasn't racist. And she's right. It's not racist. She can't help it if it's racist in some idiot's mind. And I don't even think anybody thinks it is. I just think that the black community is looking to drum up racism where racism doesn't exist, right? It's just, they're trying to just pretend that it's there just so they can advance their cause and their power. But it's all going to backfire. Stuff like this backfires. And it makes people who are not racist feel racist when you have this kind of intolerance, right? Because black people who were offended by Megyn Kelly's statements are intolerant. Right. The liberals are the most intolerant people around. Right. They want to say, oh, we 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 preach tolerance. Right. You have to be tolerant. Well, they are the most intolerant people at all, because if you really want to be tolerant, you have to tolerate differences of opinion, even if those opinions are offensive to you. You have to be tolerant of the bigot of the racist. Now, Megyn Kelly is clearly not that at all. And, you know, the fact that somebody who means absolutely nothing by her remark, not racist at all, not offensive, and then she finds out that some lunatics actually are offended by what she says, and she she apologizes, even though it's not even warranted. She apologizes anyway, right? And now she's fired? I mean, it shows you, again, how ridiculous this whole thing is, this political correctness, and how this has gone amok. And how this attack on freedom of speech and freedom of expression, right, has has so progressed. And this is all we want to care about, right? We we're again, we're on the verge of this massive recession. We're on the verge of, you know, runaway inflation and, you know, uh, you know, socialism, all this bad stuff that's going to happen. And what are we concerned about? We're concerned about making sure that everybody on television bows at the idol of political correctness. And if any one person of you know the protected class if anybody can claim to be offended by what somebody says and we have to shut that person up we have to actually you know uh, do do what they say nbc is so afraid right that members of the black community are going to boycott uh their network or their advertisers that they they can't stand up for what's right they have to cow down and and again that's their right NBC is a private company, right? So I'm not going to say that they can't do it. If they want to fire Megyn Kelly and pay her $69 million, that's their right. I'm not going to say they can't do that. But I think the fact that they feel that they have to do that shows how ridiculous it is. And the fact that they're such cowards that they're going to kowtow to this kind of mob and they're just going to they're just going to take their marching orders from the idiots, you know, uh, of this movement because the average black person doesn't care is not going to be offended. And I think that the whoever in this the black leadership or the civil rights is 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 doing this is giving other people a bad name, right? By by making something out of nothing, making a mountain out of a molehill. And of course what it really does is to the extent that there is some racism out there, it diminishes that when you're going to pretend that everything is the same, right? That there's no uh, level of degree, right? Just like with sexual harassment, you know, it's all the same, no matter what you do, right? Patting somebody on the butt is the same thing as raping them. Doesn't matter, right? There's no degree. There's no relativity. It's just black or white, right? And in this case, she said something that maybe somebody could think is offensive and she's out. She can't work anymore. So fine. NBC has the right to do that, and I have the and I have the right not to watch NBC. And I would encourage everybody else out there not to watch NBC either, you know, because I think that we should reward the networks and the stations that are more tolerant than NBC. NBC's lack of tolerance 
for me is a deal breaker as far as whether is you know whether or not I want to continue uh, to uh, to patronize their business and the answer is no I I, I don't want to I'm going to speak with my feet and I'm just not going to watch uh, anything on on NBC.